0: Order members, the House comes to oral questions. Question number one in the name of Christopher Luxon.
1: Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister and reads, does she stand?
0: Sorry, point of order. Um,
2: I I seek leave for Te Pāti Māori to participate remotely in sittings of the House until midnight on Saturday, the 26th of
3: November 2022.
0: A leave has been sought for that purpose. Is there any objection? There is none.
1: It shall be done. Um, Christopher Luxon. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister and reads, does she stand by all of her government's statements and actions? Uh, The Right Honourable Prime Minister.
4: Mr Speaker, yes. Particularly this government's decision not to prioritise $11 billion on tax cuts targeted to the wealthiest New Zealanders, (laughs) and instead focus on targeted support (laughs) for New Zealand families to soften the blow from this global crisis. This has enabled us to provide additional support to New Zealand households through the Family Tax Credit, increasing childcare subsidies, higher minimum wage, support for winter energy bills, longer parental leave, the Best Start payment, higher benefit payments, lower fuel costs through the fuel tax reductions, supporting the supply of a record number of new homes and encouraging more people into work than ever before, all while reducing government spending back to the historic average as COVID-19 stimulus and support concludes. Mr Speaker, these are turbulent times, but I stand by this government's response.
1: Does she agree that her government's decision to unleash a tsunami of cash on the economy means the Reserve Bank has to smash families for the sixth time this year with even higher interest rates just to keep up?
4: Mr Speaker, I think we need to push through the rhetoric that is coming from the leader of the opposition which quite frankly is inaccurate. I would refer back for us to Mr Speaker to the percentage of GDP that represents crown spending right now. One of the largest drops that we've seen from 35% to 31%. Compare that Mr Speaker to the national government under the GFC whose spending in 2009 was 34 per cent of GDP.
1: Why when the Reserve Bank is putting their foot on the brakes with rising interest rates is her Minister of Finance keeping his foot pushed down on the accelerator with unprecedented spending And isn't that just a recipe for economic burnout?
4: Mr Speaker, I again refer to the facts which seem to be absent in the member's question. Again, as a percentage of GDP, government spending, crown spending, sits at 31%. That is, of course, because the COVID spending and supports have come away as planned by this government, whilst at the same time we have put in place targeted support. Mr Speaker, again contrast that with the National Party's plan of $11 billion of spending targeting the wealthiest New Zealanders, which we know would make inflation worse.
1: What does she say to the homeowner with a $700,000 mortgage who, after refixing their mortgage rate, is now paying almost $600 more each and every week in interest because her government is spending a billion dollars more every week to feed its addiction to spending.
4: Again, Mr Speaker, I believe that most New Zealanders would be looking around the world right now and seeing the circumstances that all economies find themselves in. The IMF just over the weekend predicting that in terms of global growth, there's a 25% chance it will slow to 2% or less, and that we will see, in emerging financial markets, 30% of banks in distress. These are tough times. New Zealand is not alone in that. That is why, in this country, our government is focused on supporting those New Zealanders through those difficult times.
1: Does she agree with the IMF, who came out yesterday saying that, quote, fiscal restraint can lower inflation while reducing debt, quote, And if so, why won't her Minister of Finance rein in his addiction to spending? Mr
4: Speaker, actually, I met with the Director-General of the IMF and what we are doing is very much in line with their policy prescription, targeted support for New Zealanders. In fact, one of the specific things that they have suggested is, for instance, childcare subsidies, which is exactly what this government has done. One of the things they advise against Broad based tax cuts, which would add stimulus and make inflation worse.
1: Why can't she just concede that her government has wasted billions of dollars on failed programs like the cost of living payment, the RNZ TVNZ merger, and report after report on failed transport projects like light rail?
4: Mr Speaker, the Gaul of being told that the cost of living payment is a waste of money for those on 70000 or less, but $11 billion on a tax cut for those on under 180000 is not. I totally reject that Mr Speaker. I stand by our response, now he needs to stand by his.
1: Is it seriously her view that widespread job shortages and record government spending have had no impact on inflation? And if so, why does she think Westpac is saying, quote, the economy has become increasingly overheated with inflation pressures boiling over in every corner of the country, quote?
4: Mr Speaker, you could also add every corner of the world. New Zealand is in the lower half of the pack of 38 nations in the OECD. In fact, relative to others, we appear to have peaked when others continue to climb. Mr Speaker, I know the member would like to think that New Zealand is not affected by the global volatility we are seeing, but we are. But what protects us is making sure that we have low unemployment, support for, for instance, Mr Speaker, our targeted sectors that provide employment, record low unemployment and support for our exporters. And that's we stand proudly on our record there.
1: Does she take any responsibility for record high domestic inflation? Or will her record reflect that when Kiwis were suffering, it was always just someone else's fault?
4: Ah, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, again, I refer back to my earlier answer. The idea that somehow we are the only ones experiencing high rates of inflation. We are not. Mr Speaker, it just demonstrates to me the way this member has insulated himself from what is occurring. What we take absolute responsibility for is our support for New Zealanders. That is why we've reduced the cost of fuel. It's why we've increased the family tax credit. It's why we're increasing childcare subsidy. The member proposes to give those same families $2 a week and make inflation worse. We're entering.
5: Uh, David Seymour. Can the Prime Minister see the problem with every world leader saying inflation is worse than some other country and none of them doing anything effective to actually tame it?
4: Uh, Mr Speaker, again, I come back to my response. The idea that we are doing nothing in the face of inflation is patently wrong. But Mr Speaker, of course, it's not just about fiscal policy, monetary policy plays a role too. Point of order.
5: Uh, point of order, David. Mr. We... Mr Speaker, um, my, my question was very clear. It was nothing effective. Um, now, the Prime Minister said she wasn't doing nothing, but she didn't address if she was doing anything effective.
0: Well, I think you're wrong. She did address it. Uh, question number two, Barbara Edmonds.
3: Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Finance. What recent reports has he seen on the New Zealand economy? Mr Speaker.
6: Uh, Mr Speaker, in its latest note on New Zealand, the OECD is projecting the economy to slow in 2023 due to global uncertainty and lower domestic demand. It is forecasting economic activity to moderate to 1% next year and warns that risks to the projection are to the downside. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, Mr Speaker, New Zealand finds itself in a good position to face the challenges ahead and support our people to blunt the sharp edges of the global economic slowdown. The OECD noted that unemployment is close to historic lows, wages are growing and the reopening of borders has contributed to a surge in tourists. The Government's books are in a strong position, with debt levels among the lowest in the world. This will be a tough period for many New Zealand households, but our country is in a strong position to manage it.
3: What did the report say about New Zealand's public finances and its impact on the economy?
6: Mr Speaker, the OECD said fiscal consolidation was appropriate to help reduce demand pressures and make sure that New Zealand was on track to meet our budget surplus target. For the 2022 June financial year, core Crown expenses were below forecast. Excluding COVID emergency spending, expenses were about 31% of GDP, which is in line with the historic average. The fiscal impulse is forecast to turn contractionary in the current June 2023 financial year and remain so throughout the remainder of the forecast period.
3: Supplementary. What further reports has he seen on the global economy? and its impact on the New Zealand economy. Mr
6: Speaker, the OECD is forecasting that global economic growth will slow to 2.2 per cent in 2023, and said the world was now paying a high price for Russia's unprovoked, unjustifiable and illegal war of aggression against the Ukraine, which is resulting in high levels of inflation and energy supply shortages, particularly in Europe. The OECD is projecting that the UK will contract 0.4 per cent next year, while the US will grow 0.5 per cent and Europe by 1.8 per cent. The 38 nation OECD will expand by 0.8 per
3: cent. What reports has he seen on the role of the export sector in the economy?
6: Mr Speaker, the export sector is continuing to support the economy. Statistics New Zealand reported that exports rose 14 per cent to $7.1 billion in October compared to the same month a year earlier. On an annual basis, exports rose 14.5 per cent to $71 billion. The sector is continuing to show its resilience, but as I have noted previously in the House, what happens overseas will impact on New Zealand's prospects. If our trading partners do move into recession, this will affect the demand for New Zealand's goods. As a government, we will continue to support New Zealanders and soften the impact of these global shocks while investing for the long term in health, education, housing and addressing climate change. We will responsibly manage our finances and make sure that as difficult times ahead uh, face New Zealanders, we are there to support them.
0: Uh, Question number three, Chris Bailey.
7: Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My question is to the Associate Minister of Education School Operations. Would she consider requiring attendance officers to report their data to the Ministry of Education? If not, how is she evaluating whether the $16.5 million per annum spent on the attendance service is delivering results?
2: Mr Speaker, Um, to the first part of this question, they already are required to do this. To give further assurance to the member, the attendance service providers are required to provide an annual business plan, six-monthly reporting, and an annual report to the Ministry of Education. This also includes monitoring on the key performance indicators set out in their contracts, such as the number and duration of non-enrolled cases and the work to get them back into education. This information informs whether each attendance provider is delivering on their contract terms.
7: Supplementary. Is the Minister concerned by the fact that 108 schools who could have submitted their attendance data for Term 2 chose not to provide this information to the Ministry? And if so, is she considering requiring schools to report their attendance data in 2023?
2: we have a long historical time series that goes back to 2011. Compulsory data collection isn't on the current work programme. We have enough data to give us a nationwide picture of things, of where things are at.
7: Supplementary. Does the Minister think it is good enough that less than half of the 13,739 non-enrolment notification cases And just over half of the 11,031 unjustified absence cases referred to the attendance service from 1st of Jan to late October have since returned to school. And if not, is the Minister considering any changes to attendance advisor contract requirements in 2023?
2: Mr Speaker, uh, returning to school is one option for those young people. We also work on getting them into other forms of education and employment.
7: Supplementary. Does the Minister believe that spending $1 million on a campaign to remind parents of the importance of school attendance was a good use of taxpayer money? And if so, what metrics have been implemented to measure the effectiveness of this awareness campaign?
2: Mr Speaker, that money came out of baseline funding. We have a laser-sharp focus on getting our young people back into education, training and employment. Uh, We are seeing that those numbers are starting to change.
0: Uh, question number four. Uh, point Nicholas. of order, Mr. Oh,
5: Speaker. Point of order, uh, David m- Mr. Speaker. The, the question was whether they got value for money. That the minister said that it came out of baseline funding. They had a laser-like focus, and that the numbers were trying to change. But she she never addressed whether that particular expenditure had been effective in any way.
0: Yeah, I I, I counted um, three. Get, get, I'll, I'll get the member to ask the um, remind me of the question, but I, I'm pretty sure I noted at least two legs to that. Does the Minister believe that spending $1 million
7: on a campaign to remind parents of the importance of school attendance was a good use of taxpayer money? And if so, what metrics have been implemented to measure the effectiveness of yeah, this there's, campaign?
0: There's two parts, and the first part was addressed. Uh,
7: If the Government was able to publish the previous day's COVID cases every single day, why does it take 15 weeks to publish attendance data, and will the Government commit to publishing attendance data daily? Uh. Uh, This
2: this year is no different to any other year. Uh, Ministry of Education has published the data from term two at exactly the same time as it has in every other year since 2011. One of the reasons that it does take so long for the Ministry to publish that data is to make sure that that data is correct and to make sure that we have a good data set.
0: Question number four, Nicola Willis.
8: Does he stand by his statement that Many New Zealanders will be facing increased mortgage payments over the coming year. And has he sought advice to quantify the financial impact record interest rate rises would have on New Zealanders?
6: That is Minister of Finance, the Hon. Grant Robertson. Mr Speaker, I stand by my full statement that, quote, as we have discussed before when the member has raised these kinds of examples, it would very much depend on the specific circumstances of that household. What we do know is that many New Zealanders will be facing increased mortgage payments over the coming year. That's why it is a good thing that average hourly earnings are tracking just above inflation at the moment. That is why it's a good thing that we've increased the minimum wage. That is why it's a good thing that we have provided additional support for low and middle income households, things that the National Party has opposed. In response to the second part of the question, there is no need for me to seek this advice as I regularly receive reports on the financial system, its stability, and its impact on New Zealand. In response to these kinds of reports, the Government is providing additional support to New Zealand households through the family tax credit, higher minimum wage, higher benefit payments, lower fuel costs and encouraging more people into work than ever before.
8: Will the Reserve Bank's record interest rate hike today? Worsen the cost of living crisis that New Zealanders face.
6: Well, Mr. Speaker, uh, again, in an answer as, as I answered to the primary question, New Zealand households experience these things differently. Certainly, for those people who will be refixing their mortgage, I'm not, Mr. Luxon, Just listen, Mr. Luxon, Just listen for those households for those households who experience the need to refix their mortgage over the next couple of years they will be facing significant increases in their costs and cost of living pressures that's why mr speaker as a government we've committed ourselves to making sure that we relieve that cost of living pressure particularly on those who feel it the most low- and middle-income households. That is the policy's prescription that we prefer. The member may well prefer to give tax cuts to the wealthiest New Zealanders as a response to this, tax cuts that even Don Brash thinks are a bad idea.
8: Does the Minister think it's appropriate to choose this moment to engage in political (laughs) point-scoring? When across across (laughs) New Zealand...
0: Yeah, silence when uh, questions are being asked.
8: Shall I start again? Does the Minister think it is appropriate to choose this moment to engage in political point-scoring when across the country today tens of thousands of New Zealanders have learned that in the next year they will have to find Thousands of extra dollars to make their mortgage payments each week,
6: Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, lessons on political point scoring from the Olympic champion in that regard are not ones that I am going to accept, Mr. Speaker. On this side of the house, we take seriously the plight of New. We take seriously the plight of New Zealanders. That's why we have stepped up continually to support New Zealand households. Through what is in a, a very, very difficult time. Mr. Speaker, if, if what the member wants is to avoid political point scoring, let's have a proper debate about a global inflation crisis where every central bank in the world had to deal with it, where every government had to undertake fiscal policy to deal with it. At the end of which, on fiscal indicators, we find ourselves with one of the lowest levels of debt in the OECD, where we have a low lowest level of unemployment on record here, and we're on an inflation measure with a tenth lowest out of 38 OECD countries. That would be a proper policy debate, not political point scoring.
8: What does the Minister take more seriously? Name calling his political opponents, or the fact that the Reserve Bank has just forecast that New Zealand will go into negative growth next year and stay there? for four quarters, spelling a deepening of the cost of living crisis for every single New Zealander. Mr.
6: Speaker, I take seriously the fact that New Zealand, as an open trading economy, will always suffer the impact of what happens around the world. I take seriously supporting New Zealanders through that to make sure that those who are the most affected on low and middle incomes get support, not those who are on the highest incomes. Mr. Speaker, 2023, as I have said in this House many, many times, will be a difficult and challenging year for New Zealand. Our starting point is better than most other countries. New Zealanders are in work facing these issues. New Zealanders are seeing their average hourly earnings rise ahead of inflation. This will be a challenging time. As it happens, the Reserve Bank are forecasting that growth in the last two quarters of this year will be very, very strong. And yes, there will be a period where it comes off from there, but New Zealand overall remains resilient and strong in the face of this.
8: Does the Minister understand that non-tradable domestic inflation here in New Zealand is currently the highest it has been since records began and that this measure is something he can't blame on Vladimir Putin?
6: Mr. Speaker, as we've discussed numerous times in the House, non tradable uh, inflation is not a direct corollary with domestic inflation. I've already worked the member through the issues around the construction sector and the imported inflation that occurs and what is something that is largely seen as a non tradable item. What I do acknowledge, Mr. Speaker, is we are now in a period of time where inflation is much higher than we have experienced in recent years. It is an issue that all New Zealanders will feel the consequences of. What I would say is that a responsible government strikes a balance between making sure that we do the things we can to reduce that, but also continue to support the low- and middle-income New Zealanders most affected by it. That is not the member's policy.
8: Is the Minister aware that, unlike in many of the countries he likes to compare New Zealand with, The Reserve Bank is forecasting that inflation is yet to peak here at home and will hit 7.5% in the coming months, right at the same time as New Zealanders will be paying record mortgage payments. And when will that Minister present a plan to address it?
6: Mr. Speaker, those countries around the world that we seek to compare ourselves to have inflation. In the case of the UK, up over 10%. Have had inflation. In the case of Australia, likely to reach at 8% by the end of the year. We continue to find ourselves in a position where we have the 10th lowest inflation out of 38 countries in the OECD. The cost of living pressures that we see are strong. Now, the member might like to think about the fact that actually the actions that the government has taken, for example, reducing the fuel excise. Duty and half-price public transport have contributed
5: to lowering CPI.
0: Uh, David Seymour.
5: Does the Minister of Finance accept that the problem with inflation is now much worse than anticipated, say, six months ago, and if so, what changes in policy is the Minister prepared to make that he hadn't announced six months ago?
6: Mr. Speaker, um, it's certainly true that uh, the forecasts around inflation uh, have, for being more sticky, have, uh, been, wor- have been worse than they are. Now- have been worse now than they are in the past. The member will also be aware that we are heading towards a budget where our percentage of spending as a GDP will continue to go down. That is the approach we're taking, the fiscal consolidation that's needed. The member doesn't get to rewrite history. New Zealand was able to get through COVID by making sure we looked after lives and livelihoods. I stand by that approach. The period of time now in front of us is one where we do need fiscal consolidation, and that is what will occur.
8: Why is it that in this moment, when millions of New Zealanders are now worrying about how they are going to afford their mortgage repayments while other costs continue to grow, that all that Minister can offer is excuses No accountability and no solutions.
6: Mr Speaker, what this side of the House is able to offer New Zealanders is record low unemployment, is wages growing faster than inflation, is an economy that has actually grown through COVID, and when we do have to deal with the economy slowing down, we are in a much stronger position than almost any other country. Mr Speaker, on this side of the House, we understand it's a balance. We've got to look after New Zealanders, we've got to invest in public services, and we do need to return to some form of fiscal consolidation. All of that's a balance. The members' policy of tax cuts for the wealthiest New Zealanders will make that situation much, much worse. Uh, question number five, Dr Duncan Webb.
9: Kia ora, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Health. What is Te Ahau te kahu Cancer Control Agency doing to improve men's health? Uh, the Speaker.
0: Honourable Andrew Little.
9: Uh, Mr Speaker, Te Aho Cancer Control Agency is currently undertaking a large proactive program of work to transform the way cancer treatment services are provided in New Zealand. We know that prostate cancer is a serious issue for men in this country. It's the second most commonly diagnosed cancer in New Zealand men. Every year, nearly 4,000 men are diagnosed and about 650 die from the disease, the third highest cause of death after lung and bowel cancers. The work of Te is to support those diagnosed with cancer to access high-quality care regardless of who they are or where they live. Specifically, in relation to prostate cancer, this is about ensuring evidence-based guidance to improve diagnosis and inform the need to improve specialist cancer treatment and support services. This will improve how all men connect with and journey through the cancer care system but will be of particular benefit to Māori and Pacific men and their whānau. Supplementary, uh, what work is being done to improve cancer-related health outcomes for Pacific men? Mr Speaker, cancer disproportionately affects Pacific communities in New Zealand. This means many only grow up without their fathers, brothers, sons, uncles and grandfathers because of the inequitable access to cancer treatment for these communities. Te Aho have been working with community partners such as Moana Connect to better overcome the barriers Pacific men face in getting cancer treatment. This research, which will be released early in 2023, will inform further work by to identify opportunities to improve cancer coordination and supportive care for Pacific peoples during cancer treatment. Supplementary, what work's being done to improve cancer-related health outcomes for Māori men? Mr Speaker, we know that Māori have worse cancer survival rates than other New Zealanders, particularly Māori men. Māori are 20% more likely than non-Māori to develop cancer and twice as likely to die from it. These outcomes are not good enough, and that's why the work of Te Aho in conjunction with Te Akawhaeo, the Māori Health Authority, is so important. Te Aho works closely with He Auru Mōwai, Māori Cancer Leadership Aotearoa. Their members sit on many of Te Aho's major advisory groups targeting advice towards equitable cancer outcomes for Māori, as well as access to Māori cancer expertise. The Government is also taking further steps, as announced in the Budget this year. From 2023, we are lowering the bowel screening age for Māori and Pacific people from 60 to 50 years of age. This will help stem the long-standing inequities these communities face in accessing such vital health services compared to other New Zealanders. What else can be done to support improvements in men's health? Well, Mr. Speaker, I'm glad that, mem- that member asked. As with every Movember, growing a mow is the biggest way to show your support or anyone's support for this very worthy cause. And, of course, um, I am someone who already sports a fair amount of facial hair myself. And as a former, uh, sorry, as a cancer survivor myself of prostate cancer, uh, it is fant- fantastic to see such support right across the chamber. Well, some blokes are doing across the chamber to help raise not only awareness, but also funding for men's health. In light of that answer, and in view of Movember being a health initiative, does the Minister have a view of which Mo is the best in the House, insofar <laughs> as he has so his, his ministerial responsibility? Well, Mr Speaker, naturally your good self is the uh, top contender, but I am thankful for all members who have participated in this very important gesture.
0: Um, question number six. Damian Smith.
10: Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, to the Minister for Broadcasting and Media, can he name any new services which can't be provided under his public media merger, but cannot be provided without it? If so, what are they?
11: Uh, uh, the
12: Honourable Willie Jackson. Mr. Speaker, the bill ensures that current TVNZ and RNZ uh, media services will remain. But I thank the member for catching up and realising that there will be new uh, services that come from a new public media entity that could not occur uh, within the current funding and structure. As that member has identified, the new entity will be able to create new services that ensure our stories, our news and our voices can continue to be told in a changing media landscape. What these new services are won't be determined by me. As the Opposition, no, as the Minister, because we wouldn't want to interfere in things. They will be determined by the new entity. That is only right.
10: Point of order, Mr Speaker.
12: Ah, point of order, Damien Smith.
10: Uh, the question is very specific and on notice, asking what new services specifically are <laughs> able to be provided by the merger, but can't be provided without it. Uh, yes. It was not asking about what they will do which I'm aware of, is up to the entity to decide. But what this merger enables them to do that they can't do without it. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm going to agree with you. (laughs) And I I shall give the member two extra supplementaries uh, to examine the minister.
10: So minister, if it can't provide new services that you can't outline, why why are you spending hundreds of millions of dollars as well as creating huge uncertainty for employees and the industry, all for an entity that can't even provide any new services as specified. Uh, Mr Speaker, there
12: will be new services. I cannot, what are they? I cannot stipulate what the programmes are going to be. I'm not the programme director. That will be the, that will be the role of the management and, t- and, the, and the new entity. And why we are spending uh, um, on this uh, uh, merger is because the opposition have underspent on media for decades, as they've underspent on health, education, employment and everything.
0: Uh, Lord, uh, that was a straight-up question, and the minister went totally political on it. He shouldn't do that.
10: OK. Don't. Supplementary, Mr Supplementary. Speaker. Supplementary. In light of not answering that, why does the Minister repeatedly refer to the need to compete with international streaming services as justification for the $360 million merger? And has the Minister been briefed that TVNZ already runs a streaming service without any need for his expensive merger? Uh, Mr Speaker, I've been
12: briefed by TVNZ. I meet with the uh um, CEO quite regularly, so yes, absolutely. And, and it's, it's about survival, Mr Speaker. It's about survival. The global giants are applying pressure like we've never seen before. And the way New Zealanders are consuming their media is quite different. So we have to uh, build a sustainable media entity, a strong media entity, a New Zealand public media entity that needs to be invested in. And we will be doing that, and we'll be doing that over the next few years. Supplementary, Mr Speaker.
0: Uh, Point of order, David Seymour.
12: Uh, Mr Speaker, the the Minister didn't
5: actually address the question. The question was about whether he was aware that there was already a streaming service. He he said he met with the CEO. He said it was about survival. He didn't acknowledge whether he was aware of that or not, or address it.
0: I'll ask the member to ask that question again, and we'll have the answer.
10: Thank you Mr Speaker. Why does the minister repeatedly refer to the need to compete with international streaming services as justification for the 360 million merger and has the minister been briefed that TVNZ already runs a streaming service without any need for his expensive merger?
12: Mr Speaker Yes, I have been briefed by TVNZ and I am aware of what they're doing in terms of their streaming services. I will repeat again, this is an opportunity in terms of survival. Our media are under pressure. Is under pressure. Our, media, uh, our major media, TVNZ, have been losing money for a number of years now. We need to support them. We need to get a New Zealand voice up. New Zealanders need to see themselves. They need to hear themselves, Mr. Luxon,
10: and we're proud to set up this new merger. Supplementary, Mr. Speaker. I look forward to seeing the Minister on Survivor. Um, Does order, the Minister. In- Sorry. No, don't start Sorry. off a question okay. like that. You've just lost one. All right, okay. <laughs> Let's see. Does the Minister intend his merged entity to compete with Netflix? And if so, it's competing with a $100 billion multinational corporation? to which New Zealanders already have access, is seriously a good use of hundreds of millions of Kiwis hard-earned dollars?
12: Again, Mr Speaker, uh, answering the the member's question, we do not want to roll over for global giants. We want to set up and and, 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 um, strengthen the public media entity here. This is what this is about. I'm, I'm disappointed that that member wants to give away The New Zealand story to global giants. It's not about that. It's not about looking after New Zealand media, TVNZ and RNZ coming together, investing once and setting the foundation and setting up the future for New Zealand media. This is a great investment. It's sad the National Party have not invested properly. Shame on the National Party.
10: Point of order. Yes, but Mr. Dame Speaker, um, the
5: the poor National Party have had nothing to do with the questioning. It's it's completely unfair to bring them into the debate, yep. and contrary to Speaker's rulings.
0: Yes, yeah. Yep, and normally I would agree agree with that. But the the um, out of order interjections coming across is bound to get a reaction, and thank it did. Thank
10: you. Thank you. Complimentary, Mr. Speaker. Uh, Damien Smith. Thank you. Why has this merger bill not been subject to a cost benefit analysis? And is it because using $360 million of taxpayers' money to compete with several hundred billion dollar companies would have been laughed out of Treasury as a horror show? Can you repeat the question, please? I'm happy to repeat it. Why was his merger bill not subject to a cost-benefit analysis? And is it because using $360 million of taxpayer money To compete with multinational companies would have been laughed out of Treasury as a horror show. No, that's not correct, Mr. Speaker. It was deemed that it was not
12: necessary to go down that track. That's what our that's what our that's what our business analysis uh, uh, told us. And the reality: this is good money being spent. Uh, The reality, Mr. Speaker, is the National Party would invest only 90 million. We want to put a bit more money in, as we do in health education, employment, right across the board. This is about preserving the New Zealand identity, not not getting rid of it, as uh, the ACT Party would do, and the National Party.
10: Have you got another supplementary? I think so. (laughs) Supplementary, Damian Smith. Would it have been more cost-effective, Minister, that his expensive merger should have been replaced with just buying New Zealanders all a subscription to Netflix. No, not not
12: at all. Mr Speaker, the the member is just not getting this. He's not getting it. Unfortunately, he's too close to the National Party. But the the reality is we have a media that is under threat at the moment, losing money everywhere, losing money, losing funding, under pressure. So we have to... um, Start a new strategy. That's what the merge is about. It's about bringing Radio New Zealand and TVNZ together so that we can put a great foundation in place. And, and, and sadly, that member's not getting it, uh, Mr Speaker, but I'm happy to speak with him after this session if he likes. Uh, David Seymour. Mr Speaker, that, that repeated
5: uh, reference to a, a party not involved in the questioning in that instance means that the Minister's not only breaking the Speaker's rulings, he, he's doing it knowingly after you've just told him not to do it.
0: Yeah, let me think about this. A, this is um, the, the, there's multiple things going on in, in this particular question and the answer. Um, the, the, the member is right, but I go back to my former comment. There are also interjections coming across um, that are probably inviting um, some of the um, um, out of order comments that the minister has made. Um, repeated request to, uh, to the Minister doesn't seem to have worked and I maybe have to think of a new strategy and um, um, implement them
5: Another question? Mr yeah. Speaker um, On that reading that the Act Party is actually a victim of the National Party's heckling and, and mm-hmm. perhaps should be considered for awarding of additional subs
11: I'll come back to you on that one <laughs> um, The Honourable Jerry Brownley. Well, perhaps also the National Party should get us up to be able to defend itself. Uh, the fact is too, if you were to look at uh, the um, hand side, and I know that you make an effort to do so afterwards, I think you'll find that the reference to the National Party came well ahead of any heckling that was uh, uh, delivered from this side. I've been listening very carefully because I thought uh, yesterday you made some interesting comments, not necessarily rulings, uh, but I don't think that they were particularly helpful for the House. Uh, listened very carefully to the content and been part of the content going into our our questions today uh, to make sure that we didn't get in the same position uh, as your comments suggested yesterday. But in this case, uh, Mr Jackson went out of his way in his first uh, answer to bring in the National Party. Uh,
0: The Honourable... Uh,
13: Mr Speaker, I think there are a number of observations one could make about this particular question exchange, one of which is a very strict interpretation of standing orders would result in a number of the supplementary questions that had been asked being ruled out of order on the basis that they don't comply with the rules of Parliament because of the various assertions that they have contained within them. Uh, Secondly, Mr Speaker, the National Party have been interjecting constantly throughout the answers to those questions and when one interjects in the way that the Mm. opposition have been, they do have to expect some degree of response from the Minister answering a question. They they are the ones who have chosen to involve themselves in the question. Uh, But perhaps the third and most important uh, point, Mr Speaker, is that you are the sole judge of these matters, Mm. not the opposition.
0: I will take the um, time to review um, both Hansard and the um, uh, recording of this um, question and others actually. Um, uh, It's very difficult uh, to keep up with everything that goes on in the House when you want the the level of robust uh, exchange that um, the House wants. Um, I would encourage uh, the Minister though, doesn't have to do make these questions last longer than they really should uh, and if I did make a comment he seems to revel in, <laughs> in it, um, prob- probably I shouldn't say that but I'm just stating the obvious <laughs> <laughs> Is there further supplementary? <laughs> Question number 7 Tamati
1: Coffee uh, kui a te uh, my question is to the Minister for the Environment and asks Will the repeal and replacement of the RMA reduce costs and speed up consenting processes? And if so, how?
0: Uh, the Honourable David
14: uh, Thank you, Mr. Be- uh, yes, uh, processes under the new resource management system will deliver considerable cost and time savings. More than 100 district and regional plans under the RMA will be replaced by 15 NBA plans more activities will be permitted, fewer consents will be needed. Clearer notification and information requirements, independent hearings panels for plans, better designations and narrow appeals will reduce planning delays, costs and relitigation. A fast-track pathway which is already shown to reduce consenting times by 15 months will be made permanent for infrastructure and significant housing developments, so repeal and replacement of the RMA will be faster, cheaper and better for Kiwis.
1: Supplementary. When will we first see the improvements from the repeal and replacement of the RMA?
14: A uh, draft national planning framework is already being prepared and will include a pro-infrastructure chapter which will be released upon the act being passed. This will then come into force in 2024 which will enable the first three regions to prepare their regional spatial strategies, which will take about two years, and will then enliven the new designation powers. Fast Track, which currently expires in 2023, is proposed to be extended, so there is no gap between the current Fast Track and its permanent version under the NBA.
1: How will reducing the number of district and regional plans from more than 100 to 15 reduce compliance costs?
14: Well this will substantially reduce uh, the number of plans obviously and it will also enable better quality plans and greater consistency and therefore regulatory predictability. In Greater Wellington, for example, there will no longer be separate plans for Pororua, Lower Hutt, Upper Hutt and Wellington City and developers will be able to rely upon one plan across the region with provisions that become more consistent. More activities will be permitted in MBA plans, with standards avoiding bespoke conditions. This too will result in fewer notified consents and simpler processes. How
1: much is the repeal and replacement of the RMA estimated to cut costs by?
14: The uh, new resource management system will deliver economic as well as environmental benefits, and for every dollar spent, it's expected to deliver benefits of between $2.58 and $4.90. On a conservative estimate, the benefit uh, to users will be a 19 per cent cost saving or about $149 million a year, which equals to more than $10 billion in cost savings over 30 years. In addition, unduly restrictive planning restraints have contributed to New Zealand's urban land and housing prices being amongst the least affordable in the OECD, and this will help turn that around too. Uh,
15: question number eight, the Honourable Mark Mitchell. Uh, Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Police. What is the percentage increase of ram raids since 2018, and how many businesses have had security systems installed through the Small Retail Crime Prevention Fund? Uh, The Hon. Chris Hipkins.
13: Mr Speaker, as the member is aware, there is no specific offence code for a ram raid, so the data available involves mining the text uh, of all retail burglary descriptions. That data suggests that there were 84 ram raid style burglaries in 2018 and 517 as of the 21st of November 2022, a 515 per cent increase. In response to the second part of the question, as of the 17th of November, a total of 240 stores have been contacted by staff. 153 have now completed a police assessment. A total of 362 security interventions have been approved and allocated to contractors. That includes 75 fog cannons or upgrades, 62 security sirens, 41 alarms, 53 CCTV systems or system upgrades, 40 bollards or similar security measures, and 36 roller doors. Uh, many stores are also receiving improved lighting, strengthened windows, mirrors, and counter screens.
15: Point of order, Mr yeah, Point of order. My primary me, question Mitchell. was very clear. It asked how many systems have been installed.
13: Mr Speaker, I can elaborate further on that. I don't have data on the number of those projects that I've just mentioned that have been completed. The the, the list that I gave is the number that have been approved and now sit with contractors. As to when they are completed, uh, that will be a matter between the the contractor uh, and the store store concerned. Thank you.
15: Point of order, Mr Speaker. Uh, Point of order, the Hon. Mark Mitchell. That is a primary question on notice. The Minister did have time to actually gather that information, data and bring to the House and he, he should know, as the police minister, how many security systems have been installed.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and when the minister elaborated, he actually answered.
3: No.
15: <coughs> Supplementary. Supplementary. speaker. Why has a small business in Auckland had to endure 42 ram raids in the past 18 months, and spend a quarter of a million dollars fixing the damage caused by ram raiders? during a cost-of-living crisis.
13: Uh, Mr Speaker, I am concerned about the increased incidence of ram raids, and that's why the Government is taking proactive action uh, to ensure that we are following up on every one of those instances. Uh, No businesses should have to go through that experience.
15: Well, how can the Minister tell the House that he's taking proactive action when he can't even come here and tell us how many security systems have actually been installed for ram raid businesses? Uh,
13: Mr Speaker, as I indicated, there are 362 security interventions that have been approved for installation. When that actually happens, it's between the contractor who's been approved to do the work and the business themselves. Uh, in terms of the, uh, the the number of stores, the, the individual number of stores, the 153 stores, I don't believe it's a good use of police time to ring 153 of them every day to ask whether the work's been finished
15: yet. Well, does... Uh, just... Is he suggesting that it's a good use of police time to be going out and surveying stores to have bollards installed instead of actually being proactive in stopping the ram raids? Mr Speaker, if the Member is now saying that we should stop this work,
13: uh, that would be an interesting argument for the Opposition to be making.
15: What support, if any, can he give to struggling business owners who can no longer afford insurance to protect themselves from a relentless crime wave?
13: Mr Speaker, I've just indicated in quite a lot of detail the support that is currently being provided and that is across the stores uh, that have had the assessments completed to date and that work continues.
15: The question was about what support can you offer to business owners that can no longer afford insurance to protect their business because the premiums have gone so high because of the amount of ram raids currently happening in this country?
0: Yeah, and that that was addressed. Um, Question number nine, the
11: uh, point of order, the Honourable Gerry Brownlee. Mr Speaker, I'd ask you to also have a look at the answer given to uh, Mr Mitchell's uh, primary question. The question on the sheet very clearly states how many businesses have had security systems installed through the Small Retailer Crime Prevention Fund. Now someone is paying out terminal invoices from that fund. It must be something the minister knows, and in four hours of preparation, it's not unreasonable for the house to accept there might be a specific answer, perhaps as low as seven. Well, speaking yeah. to the yeah. point of yeah. order, Mr. Speaker, uh, the honourable
13: the, the member's um, point of order itself explains the difficulty. There, it can be some time before and after work is completed before an invoice arrives. Oh. <laughs> um,
0: order um, th- to the. Point of order by the honourable um, Mark Mitchell. Um, it, was, it was a supplementary question, and it was definitely addressed. Saying, um, a Minister, saying that um, he doesn't know the number is actually an answer. Question number nine: The honourable Julian Gender.
16: Tanakwe, Mr. Speaker, my question is to the Minister for Energy and Resources. Will the Crown Minerals Amendment Bill help enable New Zealand to phase out fossil fuel extraction? If so, how?
0: Uh, The Honourable Dr Megan.
16: Mr Speaker, the Bill will mean the Crown Minerals Act will no
17: longer actively promote prospecting exploration and mining of Crown-owned minerals, including fossil fuels. It will increase flexibility and allow the Government to manage the Crown mineral estate in a way that enables fossil fuels to be phased out, while ensuring energy remains secure and affordable for all New Zealanders. The Bill is, of course, just one part of our Government's measure to reduce New Zealand's reliance on fossil fuels and their extraction. We have already ended new offshore oil and gas exploration permits last term and have committed to achieving net zero by 2050. We've also set out a comprehensive plan for reducing our emissions in the Emissions Reduction Plan, including an additional $650 million for our government investment in decarbonising industry and the phase out of fossil fuels from the process heat sector. We have also have a commitment to phase out the use of coal for low and medium temperature process heat, and, and we also have a comprehensive
16: energy strategy underway. Supplementary, does she consider that the changes go far enough to be consistent with the International Energy Agency's net zero by 2050 pathway? which requires no new oil and gas fields being approved for development from now.
17: Mr Speaker, I am, as I indicated in the answer to the primary question, um, I believe that this change to the purpose statement of the Crown Minerals Act is an important part of a suite of government energy, energy measures and resources, measures that need to be put in place for, our, to, uh, for us to achieve our climate goals. Do I think this will achieve it on its own? No, no one measure will. They all need to work together.
16: Uh, Does she agree that the government needs to send strong signals to the energy industry to immediately stop investing in fossil fuels and invest in clean energy instead?
17: Mr Speaker, um, as the Minister of Energy and Resources, I take seriously my job to both promote investment in new energy generation and also ensuring that we have the regulatory settings right to encourage that investment. Um, I, I note with some satisfaction that we are seeing at the moment quite a change in the pattern of investment we're seeing in energy generation in New Zealand. It's not just the traditional uh, generation we're seeing built from our gen tailors, but are seeing a raft of independent generation Projects coming on board in the renewable renewable space. Just to name a few, Mr. Speaker, um, the the Rangateke Solar Power Plant that Todd Sunagise are investing in, that's $600 million into a 400 megawatt solar farm near uh, Taupo. We're also seeing Lodestone Energy investing $300 million into five solar farms in Northland, the Bay of Plenty, and Coromandel. And of course, We're seeing the work underway in offshore wind with the partnership between Copenhagen Investment investment Partners and the New Zealand Superfund. This is the kind of investment we need to see in our future, not looking back to the past and thinking we can keep using fossil fuels forever.
16: Uh, Supplementary, how important does the Minister think the IPCC's April report is, which states that to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, we need emissions to peak at 2025 and essentially have by 2030. Mr
17: Speaker, of course that
16: report is incredibly important. It is one of a number of
17: reports that are pointing to the fact that we need to have decisive climate
16: action. This change to the Crown Minerals Act is just one measure. That New Zealand is taking. Uh, supplementary, is the Minister confident that this legislation progresses change fast enough to meet the IPCC's limit of 1.5 Celsius and avoid climate catastrophe? Mr Speaker, um, as I've indicated
17: in previous answers, I don't think there is one change or one measure that itself can solely um, do New Zealand's job in terms of what it needs to do on climate action. I think this is a change that needs to occur. I think it is a change that we have well signalled and been working on for a long time. But in isolation, it is not enough. But when you put it together with a comprehensive programme
16: of government action on climate change, it is an important part of that suite of measures. Supplementary, are the proposed changes to the government's ability to respond under this bill sufficient to enable, quote, a rapid and just phase-out of fossil fuel production immediately, as required, according to a recent University of Manchester study.
17: Mr Speaker, um,
16: again, it is
17: part of a suite of policies. It is an important part, but we need to see this as an important part of Tranche 2 of changes to the CMA. Of course, in 2018, with the support of the Green Party and New Zealand First, we stopped the issuing of new offshore oil and gas exploration permits and joined a handful of countries that took a leadership position in this field. We now are part of a group of countries, including in regions, Denmark, France, Greenland, Belize, Spain, Ireland, Quebec and Sweden, who have seen that fossil fuels are not their future, and we need leadership that points to what a 21st century future looks like. Uh,
0: question number
1: 10, Glenn uh, Bennett. Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Internal Affairs and asks, What recent announcements has she made about reducing gambling harm in communities?
0: Uh, The Honourable Jantanetti.
2: Mr Speaker, last week I announced changes to strengthen harm minimisation requirements in venues which have pokey machines (laughs) to reduce the harm they cause to people and their families. These include mandatory annual training for all staff dealing with gamblers ensuring that staff in pokey's venues are better trained. New requirements around the steps venues must follow to identify harmful gambling such as regular sweeps and recording signs of gambling harm. Two new rules around venue design that will support harm minimisation by ensuring staff can better, better monitor ATMs and pokie machines are less visible and a range of new infringement offences that help penalise those who fail to comply with harm minimisation regulations.
1: Why are stronger harm minimisation regulations
11: needed?
2: Pokies are known to be the most harmful form of land-based gambling in Aotearoa, with one in five players considered to be at risk from gambling harm. Data from the 2020 Health and Lifestyle Surveys indicates that about 10% of New Zealanders use pokies, and while some may consider pokies a form of recreational fun, far too many Kiwis and their families they, cause se- they do cause serious harm for them, including mental, financial and social harms.
1: What feedback has she received on the proposed changes?
2: Mr Speaker, given the level of harm caused by pokies, these changes are designed to drive a strong culture of care in class venues over time. Now, I've heard some some views from within the gambling harm prevention sector say that these these reforms are positive, but they are concerned that they don't go far enough. And I agree. More More systematic change is needed to reduce harm from gambling, which is why I have started work to scope a complete review of the Gambling Act 2003. And as the Minister of Internal Affairs, I am committed to ensuring our regulations are working to reduce (coughs) harm as much as possible. And we have the necessary enforcement tools for non-compliance.
1: What are the next steps in reducing harm from gambling?
2: I expect that the new harm minimisation regulations for pokies will be in place in the first half of 2023. And as mentioned, we have also committed to scoping out a wider review of the Act, which has been warmly welcomed from within the sector.
0: Uh, Question number 11, Simon Watts.
2: Thank you very much,
18: Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Local Government. How many, if any, parks and reserves that also serve a stormwater function will be transferred to the proposed water services entities as part of the Government's Three Waters reforms, and does she stand by all her statements on Three Waters reform?
0: Uh, the Honourable Mr
3: Speaker, the public can be assured that where the primary purpose of Council-owned land is as a park, it will remain a park and remain in Council ownership. In this instance, the public will have the same access to parks that they currently have and enjoy.
18: Will she not confirm how many parks and reserves, on the basis that she will not confirm how many parks and reserves will transfer, which also have a stormwater function? What does does it say about these reforms that this far into the process, no one or nobody is even able, able to confirm what assets will transfer uh, into these entities,
3: Mr Speaker, this will be the first time to comprehensively understand and identify the extent of the stormwater network and its profile. That's why we established a stormwater technical working group to help provide a definition that would better ensure that we were capturing the range of uh, stormwater assets if we integrated it into a waters network system. On that basis, I'm really pleased that the Stormwater Technical Working Group helped to define secondary water assets or property whose primary or predominant purpose is not the delivery of water services will be clearly identified and listed in a schedule of assets that should not transfer from councils to entities. Ultimately, councils will help us identify what will not be transferred. Supplementary.
18: Does she stand by her statement in the House last week that I quote, councils have the ability to work with water establishment entities to decide which assets and land will transfer. Quote. And if so, will she commit that councils will be the ones to have the final say over the transfer
3: of their assets to water services entities? I do on the basis that the definition that was developed by the Stormwater Technical Working Group in relation to the predominant use of uh, land uh, can enable councils to make that decision.
18: Does she stand by her statement made in the House earlier today that establishment of the principles of Tamana Mana o te Wai, and I quote, included a number of stakeholder groups the rural communities, federated farmers, industry users, users horticulturalists, as well as iwi. Close quote. And if so, why can only iwi submit Te Mana o te wai statements in the Government's Three Waters reforms?
3: Mr Speaker, in developing Te Mana o te wai, uh, aspirations in 2014 under the then Minister Nick Smith, it was important uh, that those uh, aspirations were communicated and engaged with across many communities. In terms of who develops Te Manaote statements, because this essentially is grounded in holistic concepts of relationships to water bodies, that is why the Water Services Entities Bill ensure that iwi mana whenua are developing these statements. Is it three waters or five? Mr Speaker, this is about ensuring we have safe drinking water, better environmental uh, outcomes, ensuring that we protect source water, the use of it in whatever form, but also when water gets discharged back to our lakes, rivers, streams and beaches, we won't end up with no swim notices. Point of order, Mr. Speaker.
0: Uh, point of order. So my
18: I'm question not. was six words. Is it three waters or five? I don't right. believe the minister answered my question.
3: Uh,
0: the Honourable Kieran McAnulty's Mr. For Speaker, point the
7: member order. referred to three waters in the primary.
0: Yeah. He
9: answered
0: it. Yeah, the. the order. Um, the question was definitely uh, addressed. I counted. Every member should have counted the number. Well, we, well, I encourage the member to go back to answer that. And next time you want to um, speak to me, you should take a point of order. Uh, question number twelve, Maya Lübeck.
17: Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My question is to the Minister for Workplace Relations and Safety, and asks what steps is the government taking to support the health and safety of workers.
19: Uh, The Honourable Michael Wood. Mr. Speaker, yesterday the Health and Safety at Work Health and Safety Representatives and Committee Amendment Bill was introduced to the House. The bill delivers on a 2020 Labor Manifesto commitment to ensure that all workers have access to health and safety reps in their workplace should they request one. Health and safety reps play an important role in workplaces across the country already and have the power to request information and conduct inspections. Trained reps may issue a provisional improvement notice to address a problem or direct a worker to stop unsafe work. This legislation will ensure that when a worker makes such a request, the business in question will need to initiate an election. It also proposes ensuring that if at least five workers or a health and safety representative request for a health and safety committee to be established, the business will need to do so. Supplementary.
17: What does the Health and Safety at Work Act currently provide for in terms of health and safety representatives?
19: Mr Speaker, current legislation allows for businesses outside of specific high-risk sectors with fewer than 20 employees to decline a health and safety representative request from their workers and not make a decision on establishing a health and safety committee. This means that almost 29.3 per cent of New Zealand workers do not necessarily have uh, the right uh, to request a health and safety representative or a committee, which we believe is a significant blind spot in the existing legislation.
17: Is the Government making health and safety representatives mandatory?
19: Uh, Mr Speaker, no, we are not. Businesses will only be required to initiate an election where workers on that worksite request them. And workers may indeed prefer to engage in less formal ways, such as through regular health and safety meetings. Nonetheless, we believe it is important that if workers determine that a health and safety rep would improve health and safety in that workplace, that that should be able to proceed. Why
17: health and safety in a workplace so important?
19: Mr Speaker, while health and safety outcomes have improved since regulatory changes and the establishment of WorkSafe as a regulator, New Zealand does still have high rates of work-related harm in comparison to other countries. Rates of fatalities per 100,000 workers are roughly double those in Australia and about four times those of workers in the United Kingdom. We know we need to address this, and this legislation is just one step out of a comprehensive work programme the Government is undertaking to ensure that New Zealanders are safe and healthy at work.
0: Uh, no, no more supplementaries for the National. Um, I understand it is in the intention of the Government to introduce two Bills.
18: Crown Minerals Amendment Bill Introduction, Local Government Official Information and Meetings Amendment Bill Introduction.
0: Uh, those bills are set down for first reading. Um, I understand it is the intention of the government. Sorry. Okay. I declare. Sorry. I declare the house and committee for further consideration of the water service. Uh, point of order, the Honourable Jerry Brown.
11: So just a, a clarification. So in the urgency motion yesterday, there was a Crown Minerals bill in that motion. Is this a different bill? So, what? what well, if it's introduced under urgency, what have we now got? Why, why is it now being introduced? Is it not on the table at the present time? Uh, the government can...
0: The government can introduce a bill at any time.
11: Uh, With all due respect. a a new point of order? Well, it's the same point because the urgency motion is effectively an introduction of the Bill. So so we're effectively doing that twice.
13: Uh, Speaking to the point of order, the Honourable Chris Hopkins. Mr Speaker, when the Member was the Leader of the House, it was usual for the Government to pass an urgency motion uh, that would have the words and other Bills to be introduced by Government. The standing orders were changed uh, some Parliaments back. To require that the Government be more specific in terms of which bills would be considered under urgency, there is not a requirement for those bills to have been introduced at the time that motion is moved. So the motion moved yesterday included some bills that had yet to be introduced, two of which now have been.
0: Um, it's standing Order 292.